Hi, I'm Scott Walker, and welcome to our podcast, Freedom Fighters. We're here in Miami, where Young America's Foundation is holding their first in-person event of 2021. We picked Florida, well, because it's open. And uh, as you can see, it's pretty warm, too. It's open because of Governor Ron DeSantis. A big thank you, Ron. And we picked Miami, well, because of its increasingly conservative Cuban-American population. Yeah, that's right. Our focus this week is on freedom. And so many Cuban-Americans understand the failures of socialism and the successes of freedom and opportunity for all. Students are often surprised, for example, to learn that last year the minimum wage in Cuba was $17. $17, you say, well, that's, that's $2 more than what they're talking about in our nation's capital. Well, but think about it. <laughs> that $2 in Cuba last year wasn't per hour. In fact, it wasn't per day. It wasn't even per week. Last year, the minimum wage in Cuba was $17 per month. Not a lot to buy Netflix or pay for your iPhone or any other apps, let alone live and eat. And even with all the social assistance when it comes to health care and housing, $17 a month is hard to imagine anywhere, Cuba, United States, or anywhere else around the world. Over the years, I've met so many people who've shared their stories of coming to America from Cuba, whether it was of themselves, their families, their grandparents, other family members or friends. And many times they tell of heroic stories of risking life and limb, oftentimes piling onto barely floatable rafts, coming over shark-infested waters, in many cases just down the way here, Miami and the Keys and elsewhere. Why would they risk their lives? Well, not only for the freedom and opportunity for themselves, but all too often, they're doing it for future generations. That's why we're here this weekend in Miami to talk about freedom. And that's really the contrast. It's not conservative or liberal. It's not even Republican or Democrat. It's really more fundamental than that. It's about talking about what it means to be a free people. We see it in society all across the nation. In fact, we can see it in states like this in Florida, where they've been able to be free and have things open and still be one of the top states when it comes to getting people the vaccine, still be one of the best states when it comes to keeping things under control. We've seen those top states. What do they have in common? Well, states like Texas, Florida, North and South Dakota, even West Virginia, which leads the nation in terms of vaccines. Contrast that with New York and California. What's the difference? Well, the first states are led by conservative governors. Places like California and New York are led by liberals. It makes a difference. We're going to be talking about that. I remember those images uh, of people coming here from Cuba to flee the Castro regime, to flee the impacts of socialism, to flee the promises of power to the people when it really led to poverty for the masses. And, uh, and more than anything, the, the power went into the hands of the elite. That's why we're talking about freedom. Speaking of freedom, uh, Monday, this past week, Monday was National Freedom Day. You may not know much about this, but on February 1st, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln put his signature on the resolution that was passed by, I should point, a Republican-led House and Senate. The joint resolution ultimately went to the states and became the 13th Amendment. When that was ratified, the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery across this country. Side note on that, those of you who know anything about the Constitution and particularly about the process to amend the Constitution know that a president's not required to sign that document. In fact, 
our founders explicitly left it up to either the Congress initiating it or to the states and ultimately to the state legislatures to ratify. As a governor, I knew that because when resolutions came through, it had to pass through our state assembly and state senate. It did not require a signature from the governor, and it certainly didn't require a signature from President Lincoln at the time, but he felt so strongly about this issue, he still asked to sign it on February 1st. That's why we observe Freedom Day. Monday was also the first day of Black History Month. And over the years, we've had some outstanding speakers at Young America Foundation events. Many of them are worthy of highlighting during this month, Black History Month. You might not know this, but before Ben Carson was the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development or even a presidential candidate, he was the Director of Pediatric Neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins Children's Center. In fact, in 1987, he successfully performed the first separation of chronopagus, I'm amazed I can even say that, twins, conjoined at the back of the head. He also performed the first fully successful separation of type 2 vertical chronopagus twins in 1997 in South Africa. Impressive in his own right. In fact, long before he got into politics, long before he spoke at that National Day of Prayer when President Obama was in office, he was already a fixture in the history books of this great country. In fact, many of the school, there are many schools around the country and programs that are named after him because of his record-breaking feats. I think of others, you know, Senator Tim Scott and newly elected Congressman Burgess Owens have consistently been favorites of our students at YAF events. And this year, we pay a special tribute to two of our longtime speakers, Dr. Walter Williams and Mr. Herman Cain. Both of them shared a passion for economic and personal freedom when talking with our students. They will be missed. Sadly, my guess is that few, if any, government-run schools will highlight the accomplishments of these individuals that were our speakers during their Black History Month events. But we are here at YAF. And speaking of students, it's time to open our schools. You know, this is... National Catholic School Week, and the Catholic schools, for example, in places like New York and Chicago have been open since this last fall. In contrast, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio has yet to even announce a plan for when or if they're going to open in the future. And in Chicago, the teachers union there continues to thwart plans, even though the mayor herself says it's safe, the union's thwarting plans to reopen the Chicago schools in the Windy City. And then on Wednesday, just a few days ago, the, the new head of the CDC told reporters, quote, there is increasing data to suggest that schools can safely reopen and that safe reopening does not suggest that teachers need to be vaccinated. She went on to stress vaccinations of teachers is not a prerequisite for safely reopening schools, unquote. Well, this is apparently a surprise to the president's inner circle as the White House press secretary Jen, I'll circle back to you, Pisaki quickly walked back the CDC director's comment saying that they were not official guidance from the CDC. Yeah, so who are the science deniers now? Even the Biden administration's own CDC director says that it is safe for students and teachers to return to school. Apparently they forgot to tell her that the union bosses, the union bosses are now in charge of the government, not the scientists. Finally, speaking of public health officials, the New York Times reported on Monday that nine senior 
health officials in New York had left their positions. Why? Well, they cited Governor Andrew Cuomo's leadership, or lack thereof, including his failure to follow the State Department of Health's vaccination plan, which actually was in place long before the coronavirus pandemic. But that's not the end of his problems. On Wednesday, the state Supreme Court ordered records to be released about nursing home deaths. Earlier, you might remember this, the New York State Attorney General, a Democrat, in fact, a liberal Democrat at that, put out a report that showed that the Cuomo's administration had undercounted coronavirus-related deaths at nursing homes by literally thousands. Soon after the report was released, the state health department officials made public new data uh, that added more than 3,800 deaths to their tally, representing nursing home residents who had died in hospitals but had actually been in nursing homes or assisted living facilities before that. They had not been previously included in the count, even though they were infected while they were in the nursing home or long-term, long-term care facility. The state's acknowledgement that the overall death toll related to those facilities actually went up by 40%. Those findings did not change the overall number of COVID-19 deaths in New York, which is more than 42,000, 42, the most of any state in the country. But they also uh, point out the fact that many people have been highlighting, in particular, I think they validate the concerns of Fox News meteorologist Janice Dean, who went out and spoke specifically about this issue after both of her in-laws died of complications from COVID-19. She condemned the advisory by the New York state government that required admissions and readmissions of assisted living and nursing home residents without testing for the virus. Clearly, Janice Dean is better at forecasting the problems with sending COVID-positive people to nursing homes than Andrew Cuomo ever was or ever will be. I guess he was too busy writing his book or finding a spot to display his new Emmy. Instead of trying to cancel conservative thought, maybe more media outlets should actually cover the news. People might learn that Ron DeSantis is actually one of the most effective governors in the country, while Andrew Cuomo is one of the worst. That's one of the many things we'll be talking about this weekend at YAF's Freedom Conference. You can find out more about our organization at yaf.org or watch us on YouTube at YAF TV. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, I'm Scott Walker. Keep fighting for freedom. <laughs>